Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance. You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. Everyone's talking about red light therapy beds and for good reason. There's a company called ARRC LED that's building an entirely new class of LED devices. ARRC LED beds integrate proprietary scanning technology and frequency protocols to shape the delivery of six different wavelengths in dose-optimized photobiomodulation. Yes, that's a lot of words. What it is, though, is that photobiomodulation improves the underlying energetics of the cells in your body. And those changes can benefit nearly every tissue and organ and system in your body. You change your cells and you change your life. For more information, visit ARRCLED.com. What if there was a way to level up your energy, get rid of stress, and take more control of your body? Welcome to Quantum Upgrade. This is a new technology that taps into quantum energy to help you feel amazing. Quantum Upgrade has a lot of different products that help protect you from EMF and help activate your body's natural healing abilities. You can expect better sleep, more resilience, less stress, and better blood flow. The cool thing about Quantum Upgrade is that the products are backed by a lot of heavy-duty scientific studies, and there's a new measurable upgrade. You can now use Quantum Upgrade to increase your consciousness levels between 1,400 and 2,200 on the Hawkins map of consciousness. If you don't know what that means, do some research because it's impressive, it's fun to learn about, and it's something that I've come to understand. Ready to try Quantum Upgrade? Visit quantumupgrade.io dave for a seven-day free trial. Today's cool fact of the day is that a recent survey in Canada found that 43% of men would rather have bacon than sex. Well, we all love bacon. The best bulletproof advice I have is to make sure you don't go too crazy around bacon and let it hurt your marriage. What if there was a way to feel younger for longer? Well, there is. Your body needs something called the NAD plus molecule to help you age well. When you're young, your body makes a lot of NAD+, and that helps you make energy, it helps you keep your DNA healthy, absorb nutrients well, and it protects your cells from stress. But once you hit about 30, your NAD+, levels start to drop. The good news is that longevity scientists have found some things that can help, like niacin, niacinamide, and niagen. They help your body make more NAD+, even as you age. All three of these are in an amazing formula called Qualia NAD+. Check out Qualia NAD Plus risk-free for up to 100 days at neurohacker.com slash Dave15 to save an extra 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash Dave15, Qualia NAD Plus. It's what I use. We have a really good listener Q&A today where we discuss the dangers of moldy spices and raw meat, using calcium to block excess iron, the right way to store coffee, and the effects of sugar alcohols. We close, like we always do, with our biohacker report, where you're going to hear a brief summary of three new pieces of research that help you reduce your risk of cardiometabolic disease with diet, avoid staying fat by not listening to your doctor, and increase resilience to disease by being happy. Army, what biohacks have you been working on this week? Recently on the podcast, I was worried that I had a knee injury, and we thought it was actually an infection. We had a gram stain taken a fluid from the knee. My knee was all swollen like a grapefruit. So they pulled fluid out, they took a gram stain, there was staph epi in it. But they took another sample afterwards because it didn't look septic, and they found that it was probably contamination 
from pulling it out of my knee to getting it to the lab. And it turns out I actually have Lyme disease. And so I've been taking doxycycline, and it has gone down remarkably. So I now have a new appreciation for the importance of antibiotics, even if they may be overprescribed sometimes. In my case, they are extremely useful, and I'm loving them. There's no doubt that having the right antibiotics at the right time can be transformative at best. I hope that your knee gets better real soon, Army. I know we've been talking about it offline, and I think you've got a great prognosis there. Thanks, man. What have you been up to? I'm still recovering from my ice burns. It turns out I had some very, very deep tissue damage, and I have a tissue degranulation of the fat cells around my midsection. What that means, basically, is that I froze the underlying layers of my tissue enough that when I removed the ice, I was doing the cold thermogenesis protocol, and I was doing it too aggressively, not following the actual protocol because it was inconvenient and I was in a hotel room. But anyway, what I did is when the blood flow returned, I introduced broken capillaries all over the place. So I had very deep bruising. And now as the tissue is healing, I have weird like knobbies under the skin as the tissue is really working to get healed. So to speed that up, I've been taking really heavy doses of something called serapeptase. Serapeptase is the enzyme that's used by silkworms to dissolve silk, and it's a protein-dissolving enzyme. It turns out that even after plastic surgery, that serapeptase helps to dissolve scar tissue, and it really reduces tissue scarring. So I'm hoping that because I'm taking this stuff in high doses and I'm using my whole body vibration plate when I can, that my tissue will completely resolve and go back to normal. If not, I may have a few like weird bumps under the skin that will still be noticeable in another month or two. The side effect of this biohacking is that I've been on my vibrating plate more than normal. And I'm getting, I think the technical term for it is freaking ripped. Like I keep putting on muscle mass uh, to the point that I'm like getting concerned about fitting on airplanes with my elbows next to me because my muscles are just getting really pumped. This is the downside of eating really, really well and you know having the right biohacking technologies and that I'm starting to kind of stretch my shirts out without intending to do that. So we'll see what happens there. Of all the problems to have, that is definitely one of the more desirable. Yeah, there are worse things in life, that's for sure. And it's kind of cool. I haven't, after my two-year exercise fast, I you know, haven't really spent a lot of time exercising. I maybe do it every couple of weeks, but doing it maybe every five days, which is about as often as it makes sense, I've found that I'm just kind of popping with muscle more so than I meant to. Well, it sounds like an awesome way to improve yourself, and we're going to talk about that and many other ways to improve yourself in our interview with Julian Smith. Today, we're interviewing Julian Smith from InOverYourHead.com. Julian is a writer, strategist, and expert in self-improvement. We have a great time talking with him about his new book called The Flinch and many other ways to upgrade yourself. Julian Smith is a New York Times bestselling author, consultant, and speaker who's been involved in online communities for over 15 years, from early BBSs and flash mobs to the social web as we know it today. Along with being the co-author of Trust Agents, one of the social web's most recognized books, he's a contributor to GQ, Sirius Satellite Radio, Cosmo, the CBC, and a lot more. Julian blogs on his website, inoveryourhead.net, and joins us today to talk about his new book, Flinch, and how you can, as he says it, become fucking awesome. Julian, welcome to the show. 
Thank you for having me. <laughs> yeah, we don't usually drop F-bombs in the intro to the show, but uh, it was worth it since, hey, it came right off your website. Yeah, it just it just <laughs> tells people straight off what this is going to be like for the next 45 minutes or what have you. I, I love it because one of the things that we say a lot on, on our side is, you know, we'll tell you how to kick more ass. And, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's the same the same general idea that, you know, if you want to do and be more, <laughs> let's mm-hmm. be upfront about it. I, I really someone Someone said to me that I was like, uh, recently that I was like, the next incarnation of Seth Godin, because it was like, be remarkable. You know, I, I like to distill authors' messages to like one primary message. Like you could go to Tim Ferriss and say, do the minimum possible for the maximum possible effort. Like that's Ferriss. And then Godin is like, be remarkable. And so someone had made the sort of connection and said, well, Julian is sort of taking it to the next level and saying, just be fucking awesome. And that's my core message. If that's what it is, and I came up with it at the age of 29, then I got a long downhill slide from here, but I'm I'm happy with that message. If that's what I leave the world with, I'm cool with that. In your latest book, you talk about something more than just being, we'll call it excessively awesome for our G-rated <laughs> listeners out there. <laughs> Tell us about The Flinch. What is it? So The Flinch is like, for a, almost like a year, probably, Seth Godin, Chris Brogan in the early stages, who's my co-author on my other books, and myself worked on this book in various stages. And uh, like really quickly, it became sort of me and Seth's kind of baby. And we worked on it back and forth for a very long time, a really exhaustive, exhaustive, almost like traumatic process, very much like suffering exactly as we talk about in the book. And basically, the book is about everyone's sort of ingrained lack of courage, not that they are born with, but they, they have developed over a period of years of almost like training. And also because of the fact that they have a natural sort of inhibition process, which I call the flinch, which is basically like trying to keep you in a safe zone because your, your, your brain is essentially trying to keep you alive long enough to reproduce as often as possible, at which point it doesn't really care if you die off at all, because in terms of the genetics of how it works, your genes are moving forward in the next generation and so on. However, for the rest of us, we don't just want to reproduce and die. We also want to do really epic stuff. So in order to do so, you almost have to fight your own instincts. And that's what the flinch is about. It's about the fact that you are in a state where you no longer need to worry about survival that much. Now you're in a state where you're thinking, you know, hopefully at least two weeks ahead, sometimes six months ahead, sometimes a year ahead, sometimes longer. And that requires a whole different set of skills and a whole different set of reactions to your instincts than you would if you were in the savannah or the jungle or what have you. That is a phenomenal way of looking at, at something that's, I think, probably neurologically measurable for sure. Mm-hmm. So we'll get into some of the neurology around the flinch a little bit later, but kind of up front in the show for people who haven't come across your work before, how will facing this flinch make your life better? Just by definition, many arguments have been made over by like neurologists and by evolutionary biologists and all these other people that essentially we are very sort of complex pattern recognition machines. And the reason that we're able to stay alive is because you ever notice you go and you're going to drive to work or something like that. And basically your brain goes on autopilot when something like that happens because you know what the pattern is. You don't really have to think about it. You might even get to work and be like, I don't even really know how I got here because there was no emotional sort of reaction there. So it's not memorable at all. But if you come across an accident or if, if your, your usual route is sort of blocked off as it often is in Montreal where I live because of construction, then all of a sudden there is an emotional connection. There's an emotional resonance. So 
Essentially, once your brain is used to the patterns that you've developed, it's very hard to break out of them. It literally sort of builds grooves into your brain over and over and over again. You can take a look at like Edward de Bono or many other people's work to sort of discuss this. But what ends up happening is, is you just end up sort of digging those grooves like deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper, and it becomes more and more difficult to break out of them. So unfortunately, what it does is it creates a ton of blind spots and a ton of almost like sort of satisficing what they would call like this idea of like kind of satisfying what you do, but also kind of sacrificing. So that makes one word satisficing, which is what we do for the majority of the work that we do. However, that work is simply not good enough. So you're in the state where you're kind of constantly avoiding the flinch, which is this idea of a sort of going into the unknown. But the reality is, is that we're in a state right now where our environment is safer than it has ever been. Our lifespan is twice as long, at least, as it has ever been. And we used to avoid, want to avoid even like scrapes or cuts because we could die from an infection. But now modern medicine, you know, it may be costly for Americans, but at the very minimum, it's much, much easier to stay alive. So much of our inhibitory sort of reflexes are no longer necessary. And in fact, in a safe environment, what we should be doing is we should be taking more risks because very naturally, we have a like a safety net to fall back on. And so the response should be, if our environment is safe, I should be doing more. I should not be safer. I should be riskier with what I do. You said something important there. You said, if our environment is safe. But it seems like we have a lot of people where you know, environments aren't that safe. We have you know, soldiers, construction workers, you know, working with large cranes over crowds. We have kids who are in unhealthy relationships with their parents. Uh, all sorts of people who really don't feel safe. Are any of these people not candidates for, for thinking the way you're thinking? Dave, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I, I got to say, it, that may seem risky to you, but it actually, construction workers would simply not do their job, the same way that airline pilots would not do their job. You know, you get in a plane, you're like, I'm in the fucking sky, Jesus. <laughs> but the reality is, is it, like literally, pilots have described to me that, Flying a plane is the equivalent of driving a bus. And oh, yeah. that most it is so safe that you could literally something like fly every day and the average is, is that you'll only get into an act like some kind of horrible airline problem once every thirty years or something like that. So it's, it's incredibly safe. It's safe. But our than impression driving. is yeah. right. Our impression is that these things are dangerous. But the reality is that we have no clue what danger actually is. So we are naturally adapting to our environment. And so our environment says, oh, well, I guess, you know, we've been taught this is dangerous, that's dangerous, this is dangerous. But if you really look at some of the stuff that causes us pain and some of the stuff that we flinch at, it's pretty goddamn pathetic. And the reality (laughs) is, is that we've been taught from all these things, okay, okay, go to school because it's a safe thing. Is it really? Or has the environment changed? And is it no longer something that's really that effective based on what the environment is that we're in? Okay, another thing. You know, maybe you should be getting married because this is a step. All these different patterns that people give you. And the other patterns are like, your body is in a process of constant deterioration. So definitely, like all of these things where we're looking at it and going, you know what, this is really not the most effective response to the environment, but it's the default response. And uh, facing the flinch means that you have to sort of step into the unknown. What you have is like almost like this. This map, you know, there a long time ago in the book, I talk about this, this idea of here, there be dragons, what they would say, the hinterlands of a map 
is like, you know, they said Alexander the Great, I was reading about this like last week, had discovered the entire known world, which apparently is all the way to India, right? From Macedonia or what have you. So a huge, huge section of the map by the age of 26. And so you look at this, and there's these, but there's these sections where nobody knew what was there. And the reality is those are the sections where most of the profit occurs. In uh, the terms of uh, modern business, you would call that a blue ocean. It's an area where there's not a lot of sharks and not a lot of competition for food. So it's much, much easier to make profit. It's much easier to have a sustainable company. It's much easier as a human being also to be successful and happy. But those require stepping outside of your usual corridor of existence. And the flinch naturally, because your brain is made for 100,000 years ago, where once you were like 10 or 15 or something like that, you no longer needed to learn about the world. It was not necessary. Because it's unlikely that, unlike in Cowboys and Aliens, that a spaceship would come down from the sky and radically change your worldview. But, you know, metaphorically, a spaceship comes down from the sky once every year or two years in this world where we live. You know, either it's 9-11 or it's Facebook or it's the fact that the rules of, like, you know, relationships have changed or it's the fact that the American economy is like in a really screwed up state. There's so many different things that are occurring, but different technologies changing, all these things, that if your brain is no longer capable of adapting, you are literally, your world is shrinking. Your ability to understand the world is shrinking. So you literally have to be almost like in a constant childlike state in order to adapt and be able to grow. Julian, I liked your alliteration there. Here there be dragons. What were some of the biggest so-called dragons that you faced maybe when you're writing your book or just in your current business practices and consulting? I can tell you that, that the reason I, I wrote this book is because I'm probably one of the most risk-averse people probably in the world. But through a series of occurrences which have led me down a certain path, I have this realization, which is almost like I can't even deny it at this point. That Because uh, I've encountered probably like, not more pain than most people, but definitely like a significant amount of pain. Like, I've had epileptic seizures, which are terrifying. If you've ever had one, I don't suggest it, and I hope that it never happens to you. And also, I've been pierced and branded and scarred and tattooed more than almost anyone in the world. You know, I lift weights and like, I do all of these physical activities. Athletes understand these things in a way that normal people do not. Because they're so much more connected to their body. The people that react to the flinch, the book, I mean, in uh, almost like the most visceral and emotional way are often athletes that email me and they're like, I totally understand this immediately. And then the people who have the weirdest reaction to it, the most difficult reaction, are often the people that are most removed from their bodies. So it's very interesting because the more you are in touch with your body, the more you realize the safe environment that you're in. The more that you're in your head, the more you feel like the the world is filled with ghosts and monsters that you should be avoiding, and everyone is talking behind your back. And, uh, God, I better not go talk to that stranger because I'll be humiliated. And all of these other kind of spirits of your inner world that become just demons that you're unable to encounter or, uh, or exercise. The more you go out into the world, the more you discover that, in fact, everything is just very easy to take care of, but you need to be able to understand your world how to do that. You need to be able to draw that map. And you can't draw that map until you go out into that unknown space. When you mentioned athletes, that actually resonates a lot with me. I'm a triathlete and I you know, mm. lift weights like you're talking about. And one of the things that's been really hard for me is running in cold weather. You know, I'll get up and I'll procrastinate and I don't want to go outside because it's cold. So do you think that 
training the flinch to overcome things in business could be similar to how it is for athletes, just training yourself to face those repeatedly until you get used to it? I totally think so. I suspect that all of the flinch sort of training that we encounter is very domain-specific. So the people who wait in a long line at the bank, but who have a long history of being able to train their own patients by like meditation or what have you, are people that just in general in that specific domain will always have a great deal of control and understanding over themselves. And same thing in the physical world. You no longer fear a fight once you've been trained in how to do so, or at least been a few fights a few times and you see what it's like. You know what the rules are. You know how things work. So there is a similar set of rules in business or just in general for personal or for business change that need to be done. The funny part is this has been talked about in a number of different ways. You know, like who moved my cheese? The comparison was recently made by Lou Rockwell, a pretty famous economist on his blog, between the flinch and who moved my cheese. And who moved my cheese sold 23 million something copies. My book has also done very well, but definitely not 23 million. And the main thing is that people spoon feed each other this information. No one ever looks you straight in the face and says, listen, what you're doing is not enough. And I cannot do that to a friend, for example. And you could probably not do it to your family members. But the magic of, of the web and the magic of books is that you're able to give someone hard advice without seeming like an asshole because you're actually physically distant from the person and you're socially distant. They don't know you. You don't know them. So you actually have a great freedom. And the way that I would think about it is like you have a freedom and a responsibility. I'm like, sound like Spider-Man now. But because of the fact that you have this social distance available through the web to tell people the truth about what it is that they need to be doing in order to be able to get to the next level or what have you. So, so the, the same things that make people feel safe to have flame wars and sort of be rude on the Internet also enable other people like you or me to just put the message out there the way we believe it and people can accept it or not. The things that you're talking about with the flame wars is actually a great example of this. The reason people are able to have flame wars and call people names on the web and they can't do it in person is because of that social distance. It's because they're encountering exactly. strangers and they never, ever have to deal with them ever again. But you have to realize, like we also have to realize that that is very similar to our situation as we live in cities as well. We've only been living in cities with strangers for about 100 years, so our brains are totally not programmed for it. So we have this same fear. You know, Robert Dunbar is an evolutionary psychologist that talked about the rule of 150 and he said, you know, usually tribes of 150 people, above that, you can't remember people's names, like all these things happen. So it's a very biologically rooted number. And yet we encounter so many, like 99% strangers in our life, and we act as if any error with any single one of them is a fatal error to our 150 people. They also say, by the way, this is one of the reasons we treat celebrities the way that we do. It's because we see them so much that we consider them our friends on a sort of neurological level. And so we talk about them the same way that we talk about, you know, our neighbors or what have you. And there we gossip about celebrities the same way we gossip about the people that are in our family. Interesting. I think I know the answer here, but I want you to tell the listeners here, what are the first things someone should do if they're trying to conquer their flinch? Like, like step one, okay, I recognize I have a flinch, what am I going to do about it? Yeah, step one, feel it. None of this is an intellectual process, because the reality is we have all the information that we need. We're in Google land, where everything is available. If you want to learn how to fly a kite, to fly a plane, to fly, 
to bungee jump, to uh, anything you want to do. The information is there. So we, do not, we no longer have an intellectual problem. And if the information was all that we needed, literally every single person would be self-actualized, if that were indeed our priorities. But it's not our priorities, clearly, because not everyone is self-actualized. So the problem is not an intellectual problem, but an emotional problem, and it needs to be resolved in an emotional way. So to me, it, it comes through a process of feeling the flinch and training yourself to push through it in order to be able to see and feel, like literally like in your chest, like feel it and go on the other side and be on the other side and say, oh, you know, I went through that and that wasn't that bad. Like imagine someone is in a car accident. They have a car accident. They're like terribly scarred. I dated a girl for four years. Her name uh, was Ella. I write about her in the book. And at the age of four, she was burned on one third of her body, third degree burns. Because she put her elbow into a pot of boiling water. And it makes me flinch actually just thinking about it. The idea, she pulls the elbow in her direction instead of pulling it out of the pot. So literally she poured this hot boiling water all over her. And you have two reactions when something like this happens. In, in a small sense, people have reactions to all kinds of stresses such as these every day. Usually smaller stresses than these. But your reaction either becomes... To become a person that has been damaged or to become a person that is stronger as a result of it. And you always have this option. So if you become a person that's damaged and you become afraid of kind of dealing with stressors, then you become someone that's avoidant. And the other option is, is, you know, I survived that. I handled it. And so I'm going to move forward. And I can clearly take more than I thought I could. And I don't suggest that you burn yourself with a pot of boiling water, although I do suggest in the book that you jump into a cold shower every day for a week to realize that this reaction that you have, a biological reaction, that your heart starts freaking out and you start to rationalize and go, why am I jumping into this cold shower? It doesn't make any sense. Why should I do this? And if you're not even willing to do that, then imagine in the important decisions that you want to make in your life and you can't even get into a cold shower because some guy on the internet told you to, then what else are you really capable of doing? So you have to train yourself to do things despite the fact that your emotional brain is telling you they're dumb or that they're worthless or that it'll hurt or what have you. You really have to train yourself out of your own instinct. That really makes a lot of sense. I deal with a lot of people, particularly people with uh, an engineering background, uh, hardcore rational scientist types. When you say those two words, feel it, that there's a rational disconnect between the feelings in the body and the feelings or the thoughts in the mind. Is there a way to feel it when you don't exactly know how to feel it? This is the way that people get pushed into pools or what have you, you know? Like, there is a way to sort of force someone through it, but this has to be a, a conscious process. So everyone is looking for the great thing that they can do, but the reality is, is in order to get to this great thing, you have to clearly, there's so much competition in the world, 7 billion people, more websites than there have ever been, more companies than there have ever been. Everything that you're trying to do, someone else is trying to do it too. So there is immediately more competition than there's ever been. And what we need to be able to do is we need to be able to do things that other people are not capable of doing. So again, we, it requires an emotional fortitude that is, that is lacking in most people. And one of the most sort of workable ways to do it is to really be able to work it through your body. Because we understand it in your body. We're so disconnected most of the time that most of us don't have the ability to do it. Those of us that have gone through things like, I don't know, like I used to do CrossFit, for example. Probably some people that listen to this are doing, doing the same thing or have done it. 
I know my co-author Chris Brogan has been doing it like recently for a while. And you have this fortitude that develops out of it because of the fact that you're like, my God, I thought I was going to die and I didn't. And over and over again, this feeling as the more often you can encounter it, the better. It doesn't matter how, again, this is an internal thing because some people could be like, well, I went bungee jumping. That's really exciting for me. I went skydiving. That was really dangerous. But in other parts, <coughs> totally incapable of dealing with any kind of change. So it really almost requires sort of a multifaceted approach. Dealing with a social flinch, dealing with a physical flinch, dealing with an emotional flinch, dealing with a flinch in business. All of these things are different skill sets, but they all stem from the same thing, which is the ability to sort of flinch forward, as I say, and uh, push through the part that seems hard and not worth it. I found that doing heart rate variability training let me feel this flinch because I was one of those guys who was definitely disconnected from probably most of the emotional processes in my body. At, at one time in life, I basically had the equivalent of Asperger's syndrome until I sort of hacked my way through it. So I, I would do heart rate variability training, and there's a little light that's green or red, and there's a feeling that happens exclusively in your body that happens when you're physiologically flinching to something. And for me, training both how to notice the feeling and then how to consciously turn it off to push past it has been a little bit transformational, actually, using like heart math type training devices. Have you played with anything like that? Or are you sort of just like throw yourself in the cold water and, you know, run through the fire? And uh, if you survive, I mean, you'll... Have so I've been doing it for many years. Like I went, I, went, I went through a process where I was hanging out with people who cut their own fingers off for fun and uh, who, you know, suspended from hooks and so on. So it's come from a longstanding knowledge and interest in in ritual, like as far as ancient and modern societies deal with it. And the fact that we often don't have any, you know, we don't have this process of turning from boys into men, nor from girls into women anymore. There really isn't much of anything to tell you that you've gotten from one side to the other. Whereas you have this series of almost like obstacles that you need to overcome or parties at least that you have at certain ages that tell you you are now in this stage and in this stage you do certain things. The Maasai from the age of I think 18 mm -hmm. to 40 when they're in their warrior sort of state only drink and eat two or three things which is meat, milk, and blood. And it's the only things that they consume from that period. It turns you into a certain kind of person. When you have a certain title, you say, well, I'm supposed to behave in this certain way. And at least that is telling you what you're capable of. Whereas often we are not told anything. And we remain these little children inside our adult bodies for most of our life. And that's one of the things that I'm trying to fight against. Absolutely. That matches my experience entirely. And I think my list would be coffee, butter, and grass-fed meat. Uh, other, <laughs> right. Other <yeah>. than that. <laughs> so I like where you're going with all this. There's a guy named Joseph Chilton Pierce. Have you ever come across his, his work? No, never. So he's one of those sort of spiritual guys, but what you're talking about, uh, really about pushing past self-survival, in one of his recent books, he describes how he was able to, as you know, a 20-something-year-old, do things like survive things that should have burned him, like cigarette butts on, on his skin, and even like do physical feats that were we'll just call it superhuman for lack of a better word. And he writes very well about how he was able to completely bypass his doubt and his self-survival instinct. And he could only do those things when he had zero doubts. But as soon as the doubt crept in, he couldn't do the things. But as, as you describe all these things, it, it made me sort of wonder if you'd read some of his work, but uh, he might be one of those guys that would be really interesting for you. We'll get to the name of his book and we'll put it in the show notes as well for the yeah, people please. listening. But uh, it's, it's right up your alley. 
this is this thing that is discussed all throughout history in, in numerous different ways, but never have we really been in a place, like you look at it and it's just like almost no social repercussions for uh, stepping outside of the fold. You know, like, well, you know, you know, whenever you're in a conversation with somebody, and let's say there's like four or five people at a party, one person says something really awkward, you know, like deeply awkward where everyone feels it like in their gut and they go, oh, and then the rest of the people after like a sort of short silence will sort of just sort of try and smooth over that inconsistency in order to try to get back to their regular comfortable conversation. So society itself tries to smooth over the errors and the things that you do that might be wrong or that might be risky or what have you. So it's almost like you don't even need to do anything anymore. There are people at the top of their game who realize that there's so much further that they can go. And because they do that, they just go, you know what, it doesn't even matter what other people think. I have friends of mine I, I know who, who make the comparison and say, you know, all of us that are on the web should just be acting like celebrities. Sandra Bullock or like Kim Kardashian doesn't care what People Magazine says about her as long as People Magazine is talking. And in some of the ways, like we really, in terms of media and in terms of the way that we create, like we're creating more than ever, we should not be concerned with what our 150 thinks of us. Our 150 is an outdated concept based on the fact that if one person rejected you, then it would get around to the rest of the tribe. And the next thing you know, you were outcast. And when you got outcast, you died. And now this is so disproportionately out of our reality, but it's still in our brain. So we really deeply need to fight it. Those that are capable of taking this, this sort of rational, reasoned argument and then convincing their emotional brain about it will have the best rewards. Julian, I love hearing you talk about how it is important to maintain rationality and convey the stuff in a meaningful way, just running on emotions the whole time, and how it's a combination of both rationality and feelings that usually result from that rationality. To change the conversation here a little bit, we talked about some pretty big stuff, you know, getting rejected by your quote-unquote tribe and all these other things. You mentioned, like, cutting fingers off. So this is pretty big stuff. What happens when people put it off? So let's say, they, okay, I'm going to start taking cold showers every day, mm-hmm. but I'm going to do it next week. Does that <laughs> right, work? <yeah. laughs> I just published an epic post about this on my blog. I'm, I'm, some people are, are starting to call me a self-help guru, and it's starting to freak me out a little bit, so I'm not sure how long I'm going to be writing about this anymore. But I have to tell you that, really, we have this infrastructure around us, which is an infrastructure of systems and an infrastructure of people, and we have this, it's almost like we don't use it. We think, you know, I'm strong enough to do this by myself. The reality is, is that I don't wake up when the sun comes up. I wake up when my alarm goes off. And then when my alarm goes off and I hit snooze, I have another alarm. I literally have like four or five alarms to wake me up in the morning. So I literally, I can be as weak as I want to be. And you you, you have to have this admission that you are weak and be like, you know what? My body and my mind are just not congruent with each other at all. And so you almost have to build your habits and have everything sort of follow from that. I'm a big student of Martin Birkin, who's got a pretty famous sort of site about intermittent fasting. His name is, uh, the name of the site is Lean Gains. And what he does is he talks about how your hormone levels generally follow your behavior. So if you have a tendency to eat only within a certain eating window from 12 until 8, your body literally begins to react to that and go, well, in that case, I'm only going to get hungry between 12 and 8. 
Because after that, there's really no point. I'm simply not going to eat. It doesn't really understand why, but that's simply what happens. That's where your hormones adjust to it. So all of life is like this. It's a set of behaviors that you have to create before it becomes natural to do so. So it's literally like set yourself up. I have, I literally have, I picked this up from the book 18 Minutes, which is a pretty sort of well-selling book this year, early in 2012. And uh, the book just says, like, set yourself up on your smartphone with a, an alarm once an hour. And I've got it going off right now. Every hour, it just sends me a little message, says, are you being productive right now, or are you just fucking around, you know? And it tells me that between 9 and 5 every single day, except Saturday is my day off. So I literally, even know how distracted I may be, I get this once an hour because I know my own weakness and my ability to kind of put things off is just infinite. Because your brain will just convince yourself and get into this whole state. You know, they have this thing about burn victims. Again, I'm back on burn victims. And it's like... If you read like in GQ most recently this month, this is a guy who basically was on fire in Iraq and miraculously survived a soldier. And he got into such a state where he was literally having hallucinations that he thought were real. So we really have to be thinking about our brain and going like, okay, this thing is going to convince me no matter what. So I need external infrastructure to help me behave the way I want to behave. And then afterwards, everything will follow from there. Then you'll be waking up at 5 a.m. every morning, but it'll be natural only once you've done it and forced yourself to do it a certain number of times. Quite interesting. So what are the things that we do then as, as human beings to just push past these mental blocks? I mean, I've heard some good examples of people who, who basically experience significant trauma, but okay, you know, I, I'm someone who's probably driving in traffic right now, uh, listening to a podcast on the way to work. So I've got these mental blocks. What's the deal there? Surround yourself with people that are better than you. You know, like they have this movie, what is it? A Beautiful Boy, I think it's called. And it's a movie about how this these two parents discover that their kid is one of those like uh, sort of Columbine children that went out and just shot a whole school up or what have you. And their whole process of the movie is discovering why it is that their kid of all children did this. Am I a bad parent, et cetera? So my father was the same thing where he's like, how did you end up in this life where you are? Like, I'm, I travel over the world. Like, I speak to people. I'm like definitely like out of my my own home, like a good three months out of the year for sure. And um, I was like, how did you end up with this life? And the only thing that I could really think of is the fact that I had access to the internet so often, so I stopped comparing myself to people around me. <laughs> I started comparing I myself it. to high-level people that made me feel like garbage. And if I was able to do this consistently, I'm still able to do it now. Like I have people in my entourage. I was just introduced to Paulo Coelho, the guy who wrote The Alchemist. And uh, I was obviously people <clears throat> my, that are my age, like Ferris and uh, and Gary Vaynerchuk and all these other people, people I see all the time. And they're like so close to who I am because of their age or whatever. And I'm like, I'm like, okay, it's great. It makes me feel like garbage. So it's literally just like almost like bombarding yourself with negative emotions. And as long as you have the emotional resilience to handle that, then it actually really turns you into a more effective, better person. I feel like, you know, I, I talk about trauma and I talked about things like burn victims and all these things. But the reason I talk about that is because your environment is radically, radically important. So you have two environments. One of them is, I, I'm really starting to sound like Tony Robbins. This is scary, but uh, <laughs> it's, you have an internal environment, which is your mental state. And you have an external environment, which is the people that you encounter and the things that you deal with every day. So it's really about optimizing those two things and going, you know what, I'm going to become whatever these two things, whatever this, this, these paths are, will lead me in a certain direction. So I have to sort of optimize what those things are. This is my like life quest to figure this thing out. And I figure if I figure this thing out, 
and I can spread it to enough people, I will have made a significant dent in the world and I can die happy, you know? So you mentioned a really key term there, this mental environment versus physical environment. And I spend a lot of time with, with the people that I mentor talking about the mental environment and actually training it, oftentimes using unusual techniques or even electronics because it just makes it easier to, to get past the way you dodge your own thing. But you also mentioned mental resilience. So I find a lot of people, even very successful people, are less mentally resilient than you might think. Like they're basically, they feel like they're dying inside, but you know, they're going out and kicking ass in their career or doing whatever, but they're, they're genuinely unhappy people. With the, the techniques you're talking about, how do you bring those two things together where you actually experience that thing called happiness on a regular basis, but you still exceed your limits? Like It seems like there's a resiliency thing there that some people just don't have. Like How do they get it? You know what? It's it's really hard to sort of step outside yourself and really answer this question because I'm naturally quite an optimistic person. I think a lot of people are as well. But I can tell you that a lot of people are working on this. Like I know at least one guy that's working on a documentary, one guy that's working on a book that are thinking about what happens when you get all this stuff resolved. Then are you happier or not? If you're not happier, what are the things that will make you happy? There's this ancient Greek phrase called the tetrapharmakos. And it talks about the four basic things that are necessary for happiness. I can find it right here on Wikipedia and uh, look it up and talk about it for you. It's all in, usually in ancient Greek. It is, don't fear God, don't worry about death. What is good is easy to get, and what is terrible is easy to endure. And this was written, I don't know, somewhere around 270 BC in Athens, and it is still true. The reality is, is that the, the human problem of happiness is quite easily solved. It's just that most people are not willing to, to do the things that are necessary. I know myself, I could have very easily ended up a Buddhist monk and just, you know, and I've had the, the opportunity to actually just give up the life. I was in the Zen monastery in Japan for a long time and I was just like, I could just never come back. And who knows, I may. But the point is, is that those things are quite easily obtainable. Those are the people that are the most satisfied in life. Again, we know how to do it. The studies are even there to prove it versus the sort of regular people's uh, mental state. We simply are not willing to do it because we're trapped inside our own corridors. We're trapped inside our own brain thinking that we know better than 2,500 years of writing on the same topics over and over and over again. I love that answer. In fact, I did the equivalent of 40 years of Zen meditation in seven days. At least I reached the same brain state as someone who's meditated daily for their entire life using a lot of electronics and a whole lot of very hard work over the course of that week. And I've also traveled throughout Tibet and whatnot and even had the same kind of thoughts as you, like, wow, these are some of the most satisfied people that I've met. These, these people spend most of their time kind of in their heads and in their hearts. But the precepts behind Buddhism there are one of the things you just mentioned here, which is in the Greek thing, whose name I'll butch if I try and say it, tetrapharmakos. But it's don't worry about death. And, and almost every fear, in fact, I would argue that the fear behind the flinch is really the fear of death. And that the way we're wired through our amygdala in the brain is, is that, you know, you kind of think everything bad is going to kill you eventually because we're you know, our, our reptile brain is wired that way. Do you think fear of death is underlying all this or are there other fears that are out there? No, no. I mean, that's essentially it. The whole purpose yeah. of it is essentially to keep you alive. And again, the whole purpose of it is to get you four things, right? Uh, Gad Sad, who's a, who basically invented evolutionary psychology as it relates to consumer behavior, tries to relate all consumer behavior sort of in Darwin, Darwinian sense back to the four things that we need, which is survival, kin, safety, 
reproduction and reciprocity amongst non-kin. And those four things can go, basically all of consumption is to get these four things to become better and do them more often or what have you. So the flinch is really, I mean, now it gets such high level, you're almost, you make it almost ridiculous, but it is the fear of death. But I don't think, you know, uh, Ken Wilber, who I'm not sure if I like, but I've definitely read his books before. <laughs> Uh, he has this amazing thing which he says, which is like this idea of whatever the concept is, whatever it is, whether it be a human brain or whether it be the earth or what have you, everything looks different from the inside than the outside. And so here we are on the inside of our brains, unable to look at it from the outside, except through science. And when we look at it through science, we see a whole different set of things. And we go, well, you know, those things don't really apply to me, you might think. And it's different. And I feel the difference. You know what? Fuck what you feel. It's really not working for you and come face to face with that and just do what the science says and do what other people says have worked and you will end up a better person. That's just the way it is. Your own brain is hindering you based on what its priorities are and its priorities are different than yours. Absolutely. Getting around your own brain, getting around the voices in your head are, are fundamental to resilience and to you know, performing like a superhuman. I couldn't agree more. You've got some other uh, less metaphysical things that you talked about. I think, Army, you, you had a particular question here that you wanted to ask. Right. At the beginning of the interview, we talked about how we would get into some of the more nitty-gritty details about how to implement what you're talking about. And one of the posts you had was called, or had something to do with about why people should quit the Internet for a little while. Can mm -hmm. you talk about that idea and that little experiment a little bit? Sure, definitely. I went to Spain and I did a thousand-year-old pilgrimage, which is called the Camino de Santiago. It existed since the year, I don't know, maybe 1100 or something like that. Uh, it's the same one that, that Paulo Coelho did several years before and wrote about in the pilgrimage before he was famous. And it was actually my girlfriend's idea. I always wanted to do the Appalachian Trail, uh, which is 2,200 miles. But the Camino de Santiago is a much more conservative 500-mile uh, walk, which takes about 35 days. And so the post about how to quit the internet is largely, it's not even about the internet. It's just about if we continue to use the most convenient things in the world, it will literally shrink us down to almost like 10, 20, 30% of who we really are. Any muscle that we no longer use atrophies. So really, if we no longer need to use our memory, we will no longer have a memory. It's just the way that it works. The brain is always rerouting itself in order to become more effective. So if we constantly have access to little endorphin rushes by getting tweets, by checking our email, feeling useful instead of truly being useful in sort of a larger sense then a lot of the most important stuff falls to the side because we get sort of little hormone rushes from insignificant things instead. So it's the same reason, like, you know, this is totally, I'm talking to Americans, so I don't even know if this is something I should be talking about. But basically when you get an erection, when you're looking at porn, if there are women listening, then you are aware that there are things called erections and there you are aware that there are things called porn. And essentially what it is is just a, a sort of a biological hack and where you think, oh, there's a woman here, and she's naked, so my body should be reacting a certain way, and that's what it does. And so that will sort of rewire your neurons in a certain direction, and so will checking Twitter 100 times a day. So the idea of quitting the Internet is sort of to return 
yourself to old habits, like just basically go back to the 90s and go, what happens if I focus on the horizon instead? You, you have this amazing thing that happens if you walk for so long like that. You can literally point to any object in the distance, as I can still do now because I train myself to do it, and just be like, that will take about two and a half hours walk because you've walked for so long that you know it. But these are basic human things that we have forgotten how to do. So they're not necessarily better, but definitely pattern breaking is an important part of growth. And so that's the reason I wrote that post. It's great advice. I spent three months traveling throughout Asia in about 2004, back when there just wasn't enough bandwidth there. And I inadvertently quit the internet despite bringing a three pound laptop with me. It's kind of transformative. Once you lose that little kind of addictive connection, you start to realize what your brain is really doing to you. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And it's not even like something that you can really will yourself not to do. Again, it's about environment. If you just allow it to happen. This is why I turned Wi-Fi um, uh, 3G off of my iPhone. I want an iPhone so I can read, but I don't want access to constant tweeting and everything. So instead, I simply turn it off. And then I end up with basically kind of a brick that helps me read and that I occasionally can check email through via Wi-Fi. I might be better served with a Kindle. I don't know. But the point is, is to restrict yourself past the things that are simply convenient. A great book about this is What Technology Wants by Kevin Kelly. He's amazing, and definitely he describes what societies, what some people would like the Amish, for example, and how they embrace certain technologies versus others that they don't. And you can learn a lot from this process, not just necessarily adopting everything just because it occurs, but rather going, you know, how will this affect my mental state? How will this affect the way I do things? I also spent some time on stage uh, with the woman who wrote The Winter of Our Disconnect, uh, who disconnected her whole family from the internet for a while. And that was really an interesting experiment. But I think everyone who goes through that for a little while experiences the same thing. And your practice there of turning off 3G sounds like a really smart one. It's just little said, things that make a difference, you know? It, it is. But you also, I mean, let's face it, you, you blog a lot, right? So you're not exactly always disconnected from the internet. But oftentimes... People would say things like, you have to be an idiot if you're going to hike the Appalachian Trail, like who would take off three months from the internet, you know, basically like like sort of the negative side of things. But what's your actual definition of an idiot? I know you blog about this, and I, it would be interesting for our listeners to sort of hear you talk about how you define that word. I wrote about that a long time ago. Much of my blogging is flippant and is intended to cause a reaction or to debalance people and then their feelings on a certain subject. But the idea of how to recognize an idiot is to think about someone who talks shit when they actually don't know what the science is or don't know what it is that is really going on. There's a whole blog post about this. You can go to my website if you want to take a look. You come to this state where you start to know about certain subjects, and then you discover that other people are just one-upping you or they're shit-talking when they don't really know what it is that they're talking about. And I know some people that become very angry at this, and I just do the opposite, which is like a, a withdraw. I like to hear people talk about stuff that they love and the stuff that they are fascinated by and that they know about. And hopefully I restrict myself to the things that I personally know and that I'm an expert on and that I can really sort of help people with. And the rest I just like ignore, not try and compete despite the fact that it's our biological nature to try and seem like the alpha male or what have you, not try to do anything like that. Instead, just be, you know this is what I know about. And so I'll talk about that. And then I want to hear about what you know about. You can talk about this better than me and just stop acting like we know everything about every subject because we don't. So basically an, an idiot is someone who, who pretends to know everything because basically they're afraid that if they don't know everything, no one will like him. If no one likes him, they won't get any food and then they'll die. It's that fear of death everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe. 
Jillian, another one of the details you talk about on your blog is reading a book every week for an entire year. That would definitely be a pretty big challenge or one of those flinches we were talking about. How mm-hmm. exactly would somebody do that? It's actually extremely easy. Everything needs to be broken down into a daily task. I've been doing it for about four or five years now. And uh, I've actually increased. Last year, I finished 60 books. And I definitely have finished many more than that. That's the number I finished, not the number I began. And then this year, I'll probably end up reading about 65 books. I've already read like six or something, and we're in early February. So uh, generally, like everything, again, it's a habit of sort of encountering things that you're not familiar with. So again, don't go out and read every stupid social media book once you've read a a few of them because it's pointless. Instead, go out and read things that are above your level. There's an amazing post about this that I just blogged about uh, by Ryan Holiday. He's the marketing manager, I think, for American Apparel. So whenever you see a naked girl on the back of a free magazine, you could blame him. And he talks about how to read books above your level. He says things like, you know, go ahead and cheat. Read the Coles notes first. Read the Amazon reviews first. Read about it on Wikipedia and see what the conclusion to the history of, you know, the Civil War is before you actually go and read the book. Because your point is to accumulate information. It's not to be confused about what the book is about. So to me, all those things work. It's just a constant process of not even, it's not about the one book. It's not even about accumulating knowledge from a certain book. It's more like just a constant process of growth and pushing yourself to understand and learn things that you haven't learned. And I can tell you that personally from doing it for four and five years, it's been one of the most important and simplest things that I've ever done. And all of the knowledge in the world is accessible, so I don't see why... You know, Marshall McLuhan said an amazing thing once, which is that we have the ability to become as wise as all of the wisest people, the most important people in history, because they've all written things down. And once they've written things down, we have the ability to accumulate that information and be like, yeah, I get it. So anything that is accessible via the intellect is something that you can gain access to and should. If you're not doing that and you're watching reality TV instead, then you're definitely wasting your life, unless it makes you happy. If it genuinely makes you happy, then that's fine with me. But to me, it's like, (laughs) how far can I go with this? How much can I learn? And how much can I figure out about the world around me? And so doing it for four or five years, it's just 40 pages a day, 40 or 50 pages every day. Do it early in the morning, it'll become a habit, and it'll become automatic. I'm known for, for driving my family nuts because I have you know, three or four books in, in most of the rooms. So if I sit down and I've got an extra five minutes, I'm going to read something. And it's really important to keep stretching your mind that way. And now we're, we're reaching the end of our interview. And we ask everyone who comes on the show the same question as the final question. Physicians have answered it, you know, brain hackers, all sorts of people. But it comes down to if you had three and only three tips for people about how to be the most high performance, most awesome person in the world. What are those tips? Like what are your top three most important stripping everything else out? Get yourself about six months worth of living expenses out of the way as fast as possible so that you can focus on the long term. If you can't focus on the long term, you can't make good decisions. So you need to think about what it is that's actually most important on a long-term level, not in the next two weeks. So stop living paycheck to paycheck. Do whatever it takes to do that. Then afterwards, you free up your time. With your ability to free up your time, then you have the ability to go and get a wider network than anyone else does. With a wider network, you get a ton of access. And with a ton of access, then you can actually do things in the world. And then the third thing is focus on something that actually matters, on a problem. What Paul, the guy from Y Combinator, can't remember his name right now, calls schlepping. It's a place where people 
have a problem and then try and solve that problem. So then you're looking at, you have all the access to the people that are necessary to help you solve it. You are not stuck paycheck to paycheck, so you have the ability to work on that problem. And then if you're able to solve a problem in the best way possible, then all of the world's sort of value is brought back to you. So those are the three things that I would say just off the top of my head like that. Julian, thanks so much. It's been awesome to have you on the show. Can you tell our listeners one more time your URL and your most recent book so that they can find you? This will, of course, be in the show notes, but just say it now. I wrote the New York Times bestseller Trust Agents. I also wrote the book The Flinch, which was published through Seth Godin's Domino Project. And I have two upcoming books, which you can read about on my blog, which is at inoveryourhead.net. Thanks again, Julian. Julian, thank you so much for coming on. It was awesome talking to you. And one thing really quick, just so everyone knows, the flinch is free in Kindle edition. So you don't have to pay oh, yeah. anything for it. That's true. It's free, and you can pick it up for absolutely nothing. Over 100,000 people have downloaded it so far, and it has done amazingly well. Now we'll start with the Upgraded Self Radio listener Q&A. The first question is from James. What is the best way to store coffee beans? Well, the best way to store coffee beans is to drink them quickly. But if you're not going to do that, there are other opportunities for you. If you're going to store a larger amount of coffee beans, I recommend that you either vacuum seal them, put them in glass jars, or if you're talking about Bulletproof Upgraded Coffee, we have one-way valves on our bags, and they're very thick, good-quality bags. So you can actually push all the air out of the bag, tape over the one-way valve, and store it in the freezer directly that way, and they'll keep for quite a while that way. Even a couple months is not a problem. That said, Two-month-old, three-month-old frozen coffee is just not as good as fresh coffee, but it's not unsafe. The trick about that, though, is that if you've frozen your coffee, when you take it out of the freezer, it needs to sit out on the counter until it's room temperature all the way through before you crack the seal. Otherwise, you're going to get condensation from the air in the coffee, and that really will affect your coffee quality very much. So it's a bad idea to store your coffee in the fridge or the freezer and take it in and out every day. The coffee that you're going to be drinking this week, you should store in a sealed canister, preferably one that doesn't let light in, in a cool, dark place. The next question is from Kira. Hi, guys. Great podcast. I eat meat most days of the week, and my last blood test showed slightly elevated levels of ferritin. And instead of dialing down on it, I decided to try and hack it by taking a calcium supplement with the meat. According to some sources, the calcium supplement would partially inhibit iron absorption. You know, at the Personal Life Extension Conference this last week uh, where I presented on the Bulletproof Diet, we had a really cool talk from Terry Grossman, who's an anti-aging physician who does work with uh, Ray Kurzweil. And a big part of his presentation was about ferritin and the health problems associated with elevated ferritin levels. Now... Red meat certainly can raise your ferritin levels, but there's one very simple technology available to lower your ferritin, and that is donating blood. And we've known for a long time that donating blood is healthy for you, and it's something that I've made a practice of for a long time. Although in the last two and a half, three years, I haven't donated blood because it just hasn't been very convenient where I live. I'm guessing that when I get my Wellness FX results back, that my ferritin levels will be elevated. And so I'm going to need to do a few blood donations. So this is a bulletproof practice that I recommend everyone do, but one that we probably haven't publicized enough in our recommendations. So in general, you ought to be donating your blood. 
probably once a quarter every three months, which is going to help you on multiple fronts, including ferritin levels. I'm not convinced that a calcium supplement is the best idea here, though, because it may or may not inhibit some of that iron absorption, but it also can cause cardiovascular problems. Most of us are way in excess on calcium versus magnesium. And I think, for instance, that I haven't taken a calcium supplement other than D-glucarate or AEP in 10 years, and my calcium levels are slightly high even then. So eat the right food, you won't have a problem. There are some studies showing that calcium supplements would make a small difference in ferritin, but as Dave said, it might cause cardiovascular problems, and the body adapts to that. So even if it might cause a short-term decrease in ferritin levels, it doesn't make any difference in the long term. The next question is from Anklefoot MD. Onion, garlic, pepper, and cinnamon are way too far to the right on the Bulletproof diet. Putting the sugar alcohols on the left is also incorrect. These substances act two-thirds the same as sugar and are poorly absorbed, travel to the lower intestine, and increase abnormal gut flora and gas. So I guess it's not really a question, it's more of a critical comment, but do you want to respond to that? Absolutely. Uh, first off, it sounds like we're dealing with an MD here, either that or someone from Maryland, but if you're a physician, you're not alone on the site, and thanks for coming in, and thanks for your comments. Here's the deal with onion and garlic. They both have an unstable nitrogen bond, and both of them have cognitive effects in people. They inhibit alpha waves. What this means is that the stereotypical Italian housewife, you know, the hothead sort of thing, is based in high-dose garlic and onion on a regular basis. They are both wonderful medically, and I have used them many times. But if you think you're doing yourself a favor by eating onion and garlic all the time, particularly garlic, which is the strongest here, you will notice if you have an advanced meditation practice or if you use an EEG machine that it does inhibit your alpha waves. It's just a fact of life. If you're seeking inner calm and peace and less stress, making onion and garlic medicinal rather than staple foods will help you perform and feel better. If you're pregnant, they'll also help your fetus behave more and be less stressed and basically kick you less. Pepper and cinnamon are in different locations to the right for different reasons. Black pepper is incredibly contaminated with aflatoxin and other mycotoxins. It's one of the more contaminated foods. It is also high in amines. There's a reason that we use black pepper extract in order to increase the level of substances in some supplements. There's something called bioperine, which is black pepper extract that slows down liver absorption. We don't want to slow down what your liver does on the Bulletproof diet. So I've found in an enormous number of people that if they eliminate black pepper and maybe replace it with oregano or cayenne, that they do better on it. They do better cognitively, and oftentimes they do better from a digestive perspective. There is a link between aflatoxin and Crohn's disease and irritable bowel syndrome. Black pepper is a common source of small amounts of physiologically active aflatoxin. Cinnamon is off on the right because there actually are well-known cinnamon toxins. If you're going to have a half a teaspoon, fine. If you're going to have significant amounts of cinnamon, you're better off to take sinulin, the extract of cinnamon. So cinnamon is fine, but as Tim Ferriss writes in The 4-Hour Body, it matters what kind of cinnamon you get, and in big letters, don't take too much of it. So cinnamon good, too much cinnamon bad. From the perspective of the sugar alcohols, this is one of the differences between what the Bulletproof Diet does and paleo. There are very good reasons for not recommending all sugar alcohols, but recommending the ones we recommend. Army, what do you have to say about erythritol and xylitol? 
As you just hinted, not all sugar alcohols are the same. Erythritol and xylitol do not cause digestive problems. Uh, hold on, hold on, hold on. They do cause digestive problems, but not the same digestive problems. Well, xylitol can cause some digestive problems in the short term, and your body does adapt to that over time as your body starts to extract more sugar from it. But erythritol, they've actually found you can consume up to 80 grams of erythritol without any digestive problems. And your body adapts to xylitol over time, but you do absorb a little more sugar from it as well, which is one of the reasons it doesn't cause those problems. Maltitol and sorbitol are probably the ones this guy is referring to, and those are actually used as laxatives in some formulas, and those can be problematic. Exactly. I tell people if they're going to start using xylitol, don't take a cup of it at a time. You're not going to like what happens. If you take a tablespoon or something, you'll probably have something that tastes sweet and you won't have any GI upset. If you take it on a regular basis, you'll have no problems whatsoever. And erythritol it has far fewer effects, but it tastes very cool and minty to some people. There's a side effect, too. Xylitol improves bone density in women who take significant doses of it. So xylitol gum is a pretty popular thing. If you're suffering from SIBO, small intestine bacteria overgrowth, then maybe xylitol isn't the right choice for you, but erythritol has never been shown to cause the problems at all that I'm aware of. Yep, and they're all sweeter than, or about as sweet as sugar, so they're all a good choice, really. Now, if you have any questions for the podcast, you can contact us on Twitter, on Facebook, or by leaving a comment in the show notes for this episode. The show notes will be displayed on bulletproofexec.com, along with links to everything we talked about today. Now it's time for the Biohacker Report. This is the part of the show where we bring you some of the latest research that was interesting this week. The first piece of research that came across my desk was from the Journal of Nutrition and Metabolism from Sweden's Lund University. Now, my Swedish wife is going to yell at me because I terribly butchered the name Lund, but that does happen. If you're Swedish and there are 8 million people who are Swedish and you're listening to this, thank you for listening and I apologize for that absolute butchering of the word. The researchers wanted to see how modulating the diet of overweight but basically healthy people would improve their overall risk of disease. They took 44 healthy men and women, randomized them into four total groups, and did a crossover trial. And there was a male and a female group for each diet. The first diet they tested was called the active diet, and they added fatty fish, extra plant fiber, omega-3s, probiotics, and some other kind of healthy stuff. The other one was the regular Nordic diet that served as a control, which, from experience, definitely has some fried stuff in it and a whole lot of herring. The active diet lowered their CRP by 29%. The active diet also improved their LDL ratio and their total cholesterol improved as well. The active group diet lost more weight and weight loss is definitely known to improve symptoms of metabolic syndrome. So this was kind of cool. The active diet group that was eating more fat and more plants and more omega-3s did a lot better than the standard diet. So this is just a free living study. And they said, look, simple dietary modifications lowered overall risk of disease from eating more fish fat. That's pretty cool. The next study is called Impact of Physician BMI on Obesity Care and Beliefs. This was published in the Journal of Obesity. The researchers wanted to see how the BMI of a doctor affected their treatment suggestions for overweight and or obese people. They surveyed 498 doctors at random across the nation, and they found that if a doctor was a normal weight, they discussed the diet 27% of the time with obese patients. 
But if the doctor was overweight, they discussed that only 16% of the time with obese patients, so 11% less. Doctors were also more likely to diagnose obesity if the patient was fatter than they were. The obese doctors had less confidence their patients would follow diet advice as well. Only 37% of obese doctors believed they were competent enough to offer nutrition and exercise advice, where 53% of normal physicians were. This isn't definitive, but it is an indication that if you're having problems with diet and lifestyle diseases, doctors might not always be the best source of curative information, and you might be better off going to other sources, maybe like a blog called the Bulletproof Executive. You know, I'll be a little bit more blunt there, Army. This may be rude, but you should not take dietary or diabetes, any kind of information from a physician who is overweight. The old saw, physician, heal thyself, actually is really true here. It's fine if your doctor has a cold, your doctor has chronic health problems. All people may have those at some times or another. But if someone's grossly obese and wants to do surgery on you, that's one thing. If they're grossly obese and wants to tell you how to eat, sorry, they don't know how to do it because they didn't do it themselves. And it's not a personal struggle when you're eating the right foods. It just happens, and it's natural, and it feels good, and you can eat bacon. All true. Our final study here in the Biohacker Report is from the Journal of Psychosomatic Medicine. They looked at this study here, which says positive emotional style predicts resistance to illness after experimental exposure to a virus, in this case, rhinovirus or influenza A. This is at Carnegie Mellon, and 193 healthy volunteers, healthy but crazy volunteers, I would say, were assessed as being either happy or positive or sad and negative. Then, on purpose, they were exposed to the common cold virus or the flu and monitored for symptoms. The people with a positive outlook were more resistant to both forms of disease. So you could say, oh, maybe these people were happier because they were healthier in the first place, but either way, there's almost certainly a connection here. The cool thing is one of the main bulletproof techniques that we talk about is overcoming that voice in your head and learning to control your autonomic nervous system. If you're doing a mindfulness meditation, or better yet, you're using the M-Wave with heart rate variability training, you're actually teaching yourself to turn on happy. It's a skill you learn so that you can actually carry around a positive outlook and you can do it consciously and on purpose. If you do that, I know from personal experience and from lots of research that you actually will be more resistant to many different diseases. So you have very little to lose by teaching yourself how to be happy, and you probably can gain less sickness, and that's cool. You can find links to everything we talked about in the show notes at bulletproofexec.com. We pay out of pocket to transcribe every one of these shows so that our notes are searchable and you can find anything we said. If you enjoyed this and you find it of value, we really appreciate a positive ranking on iTunes. And we're always happy to have people follow us on Twitter, leave comments on the blog or in the Bulletproof forums, and sign up for our mailing list so we can let you know when new cool stuff is happening. Army, thanks. Talk to you soon. See you later, Dave. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. 
The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.